Hello and welcome to the latest HSF Charities podcast. My name is Richard Norwich. I'm a partner in the London office and I head up HSF's charities practice. Well, our podcast today, today we're speaking with Dr. Rebecca Delsalt of Stopwatch. Thank you very much for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you for making the time to chat through uh, your background and tell us a bit more uh, about Stopwatch. Should we kick off on that note and just tell us a bit about your background? Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here today. So I am a criminologist by training. My fascination has always been around racial justice in policing and criminal justice. And I'm a founder and trustee of the charity Stopwatch. Excellent. And some people may well be familiar already with with Stopwatch and what its aims are and and who the people involved are. But for people who are new to it, do you just want to give us a bit of intro to, to Stopwatch, what it does? Yeah, so Stopwatch is a coalition that formed uh, about 10 years ago, um, and it's a coalition of lawyers, uh, academics, civil society, community stakeholders that work together to promote fair and effective and accountable policing. And our specific focuses are on reducing ethnic disproportionality in stop and search and ensuring that there's effective monitoring and meaningful accountability around how those powers are used. And we also do work to think about alternatives, uh, work to try and ensure that there's more voices of those impacted by the use of policing within policy um, and practice circles. And then on the other side, we're also supporting individuals and communities who are negatively impacted by policing. Great. And uh, what kind of people are involved in Stopwatch? Who are the trustees you've got and the people who who work with the organisation? So we've got a team of uh, nine trustees, but Stopwatch really evolved from being a small project and a coalition. With the idea, when we started around 10 years ago, Stop and Search has been a problem now for decades. And we started coming out of the, uh, it was the late 2000s when there had been a really massive increase in the numbers of stops and searches. There'd also been a couple of victories. So there was the removal of Section 44, which was a counter-terrorism power that left unlimited powers that the European Court ruled was um, arbitrary and so unlawful. Um, So we felt that as well as an increase, there was also uh, some opportunities for change. And so we came together as a coalition trying to think about bringing different stakeholders together and trying to see if we could work together, that we could have more collective impact around stop and search. Um, And so the idea was to really draw on very different expertise and use it together. So we've got lawyers that form part of our legal group who specialise in bringing legal opinions, in supporting individuals, in strategic challenges. We have a lot of academics who... um, One of our key things has always been about we have a lot of data, but how do we make the data meaningful? How do we uh, use it to really promote reform? We have a youth group and young people who are directly impacted by Stop and Search who who want to advocate or want to have an avenue to share their experiences. We have community organisations because there's many community-based organisations or even larger NGOs that have expertise around this area. So it's really trying to pull together and coordinate some of that expertise to work together. And finally, we have many different stakeholders from community groups or individuals that are just interested in it. And we've always prided ourselves on having a model where we think about collective impact and collective expertise. So that maybe the academics expertise may be maybe data equally as valuable as a community member's expertise of their lived experience and how they're experiencing policing on the ground. And our sense is by bringing together these collective voices and expertise, we can have greater impact. And we started as a small small group or coalition and then grew eventually into first a project housed within a charity and then also um, becoming an independent charity in 2015. And so we've experienced and, and moved around with different staffing and organisational structures 
but our ethos is very much having a kind of volunteer base so as well as we have a group of trustees which are the legal have legal responsibility for the trust for the organization we have a, a, a coordinating group which is made up of people that are passionate and volunteer their time to the organization who actually set the strategy of the organization and then we have various different groups and find different ways for people to volunteer and uh, give their time towards the organization and where, where do you fit within that Rebecca are you, are you a volunteer are you partly devoting your time to the charity and partly devoting your time to other things what's your kind of personal story there Yes, yeah, so um, I, along with a few others, were one of the founders who came together in the late 2000s um, because of an interest around stop and search. So I've been around for a long time as part of the group. <laughs> and I'm also a trustee, so I have uh, the legal and statutory responsibility over the charity, but I mainly see myself as a volunteer. So I volunteer mainly around policy and research for the charity, as that's my expertise. I think I mentioned that my day job is as a criminologist. So I work for, I manage an international global project on fair and effective policing, which has just been renamed as Dismantling Structural Racism for the Open Society Justice Initiative, which is an operational unit of the Open Society Foundations, a large human rights charity that works, foundation that works across the world on a number of issues. But my part of the organisation really looks at systemic discrimination in policing across Europe. So for the last 15 years, I've worked on a more structural global level, looking at at racial profiling in policing and everything from research to supporting communities to advocate around it to litigation efforts and sometimes working in partnership with police forces on good practice. And my work has been very, we've focused on Europe, but also worked in the US, Latin America and Australia. So I've had quite a global outlook on what's happening. And so my work with Stopwatch has always been a wonderful experience because it's kind of balanced that global look and the more structural stuff with really working on the issues on the ground in the UK with communities and with partners here. Great. And the, I mean, you mentioned your, I suppose, your academic background. Is that how you got into this area or did you have... I suppose, personal interest in it in advance of that, or did that kind of coalesce and all come together? I think both of those things, really. Um, I struggle now. I'm not as old as I sound, um, but I struggle <laughs> now to remember how um, I, <laughs> where the initial interest um, in Stop and Search came from. But I did a PhD that looked at uh, the notion of institutional racism and Stop and Search comparing the UK and the US. So I spent about a year and a half almost in total, first with two forces in the UK and with two forces in the US, riding around in the back of police cars, interviewing police officers and really getting a sense of how street policing and the dynamics around that were at play in reality. But my interest in policing went deeper than that. I think the time I started my PhD was around the the publication of the McPherson report, so the 2000s, where they'd identified uh, stop and search as an example of institutional racism. So it felt like there'd been a public acknowledgement of institutional structural racism. And at the time, I remember, you know, there was public meetings held. People felt that there was the capacity for change or there was at least a recognition of a problem that was decades and decades old. So that was from a a kind of policy research perspective. That was where I think my my interest was like this was a really good time to look at if there is more openness to to work on it and change the problem. What's actually happening and how does the concept of institutional racism really play out and make sense when when you're looking at policing and stop and search and I think from a personal level uh, stop and search and policing has always been something that's that's impacted family members um, and I grew up in 
South London, so with somewhere with a very long tradition of concerns around disproportionate policing. I haven't warned you this, so I don't know if you have the stats to hand, but can you give us a feel of stop and search and the way that it's deployed against different groups in society? Yep. So I think when we're talking about stop and search, it's really useful to hold the juxtaposition in your head of what we mean by that. Because um, for a police officer, and I've spent over the years many time going out on patrol and, and watching police work, they do many, many stops and searches in the course of their day. For them, it's almost bread and butter of what they do. Actually, not even the bread and butter. In some ways, it's, it's some of the exciting things that they do, because it's the time that they're out on the street. They're trying to use their initiative to identify uh, or prevent a crime. And then they stop someone. But they do many of them in the course of their professional duty. And so often when you talk to police officers, there's a, not always a recognition of the impact that that has from the other side. For them, it, it's what we do. It's we're, we're mm. doing our job and, and that's, that's what we do. On the other side, if you're someone who is stopped and searched, it isn't a moment's inconvenience. It's actually an experience where you're stopped, you're pulled out on the street. People are passing, walking past, assuming that perhaps you've done something. Um, it can have, you can be scared. It can be a very humiliating experience. Added to that, the racialized element of many stops and searches and then it has long-term consequences for people so it's not just the stop it's also the uh, psychological impact of being stopped and we're beginning to have much more empirical data charting the the psychological impact that it has on individuals and communities there's also knock-on practical impacts of stop and search the more people are focused on it can pull them into the criminal justice system it can have impacts around employment education and life chances um, and on a very practical practical issue if you're stopped on the street it's embarrassing it can make you late for late for things I've had young people talk about being constantly late for school or exams but for those on the receiving end it's a big deal but if you're watching it and you're a police officer it can just be every day and I think that juxtaposition is really important in the UK when we're talking about stops and searches I think we often lump a lot of different experiences and laws into one so we could be just talking about stops and the police can stop anyone at any time to ask them what they're doing, why they're there. And when they do, you don't have to answer. They're just it's a conversation and you're free to walk off. But an officer doesn't need to tell you that. So I think often people feel obliged to stop and have a conversation. And then we have a series of stop and search powers where officers are required to, in many cases, develop reasonable suspicion. So an objective reason why they're stopping someone and what they're looking for. And so under something like 22 different stops and search powers. 22? Yes, there's lots of there's stop and search powers for something like for people that are poaching or... Um, oh, I see. So there's there's lots of different stops and search powers and all together they make up this collective body and, and there's something like 22 different acts. But for most of them, the key part of it, that the officer has to develop reasonable suspicion that the individual has been involved in or is about to be involved in crime and then the officer can stop that person they can search them, which means their outdoor, their outer clothing. Um, so, you know, gloves and hats and stuff can come off. They can pat them down. Um, they can't go any, any, in any more depth than that. And then either their suspicions are allayed and the person can, can go on their way or they, they, they can detain them and take them into custody. Um, and there's some safeguards around that process, such as the, a record being made so that we have statistics, but also so that the person has a record of the stop and then can challenge it. There are a couple of exceptional powers as well, which have developed um, in different ways. So there's a couple around terrorism and one around Section 60, which basically means that if there's a pending violence in an area, 
the police can put in a, effectively a stop and search zone and they can search anyone in that zone without individual suspicion. So you could just happen to be in that zone and the police would come up to you without having to articulate a reason, an individualised reason to you. Um, but then the search, the search procedure would carry on in the same way. And then also, once you have been searched, there are sometimes more thorough searches. So it may be that the officers believe they need to go into your trousers or they need to search you more thoroughly. And they would do that away from public view. So in the back of the police car or somewhere public. And if it needed to go to the level of an intimate search, they might be searching body cavities for, for drugs or other uh, hidden articles. They would then need to take you to a, a police station. And that's what we would colloquially call a strip search. So those are powers on the streets. And then there is also powers to stop vehicles which is a, a traffic stop that sometimes we talk about, which um, you, the officers can stop the, the car in relation to concerns around traffic offences or problems with the car. So there's lots of different ways that people can come into contact with a police officer where it's police initiated. But I think for many people in the public, we lump together the idea of a, a stop and search and we're talking about something that is initiated by the police officer where the person feels to or does have to comply with the law. I mean, you've mentioned an amazing array of police powers and, and areas in which this can be relevant. As an organisation, does Stopwatch focus on any of those powers in particular? Um, so we focus on all of them and also kind of auxiliary things that go along with that. So um, we at the moment doing some research into Section 60, which is the exceptional stop and search power that is effectively a suspicionless power. Um, because there's been an increase in that in the last two years and real concern about people being stopped without there being any individual um, suspicion that they've done something wrong. And then we generally uh, do definitely uh, monitor and chart the different the different powers and how they're used and any extension to those powers, looking at everything from the outcomes, the, um, the disproportionality, where they're being used and, and really looking for, for pattern and trends and things that, that we could work on trying to change. Um, but we also do look at kind of auxiliary uses of, of additional power. So things. one of the concerns we have at the moment is the use of force in stop and search. So the use of handcuffing in stop and search. And legally, handcuffing shouldn't be a routine part of stop and search. It should only be used when an officer is concerned about a threat to him or the public safety. But it seems to have become a routine part of stops and searches. So we're, we're doing some research and campaigning into that at the moment. Um, and then we're interested in things like tasers or other use of force that sometimes escalates out of an initial stop and search. So you talked about research and campaigning, which is obviously a key part of, of how you guys work, how you operate. What, what would you say has been your biggest success to date? What's worked well? What's been effective for Stopwatch? I think I would say that I think there's been a number of successes. For me, a lot of the success has really come from working in coalition and being able to put um, things on the agenda that weren't there. So I think the, in many cases, academic research is often very distant from lived experience. And I think one of the key successes or the things that I take pleasure in in some of Stopwatch's work is being able to put the voices of people that are impacted into policy debates. So a couple of years ago, we did a report called Being Matrixed, and there was a lot of talk in the media and in politics around gang databases and the labelling of black youth as gang members and being put on a matrix, which is a, the Metropolitan Police's gang database, but most forces have something similar. And one of the things we did was some really in-depth research with 15 young people who were on the matrix and who spent a lot of time talking about their lived experience and what it had meant to, to be policed um, and then to, to end up on the matrix and the impact of that had had on their lives. That was done by a colleague, uh, Patrick Williams from Manchester. 
And I think for that really summed up to me the value of, of having a coalition, because although there was policy debate on it and we had some statistics, we didn't have the voices that those are impacted and we didn't mm. we didn't know what it actually meant, I think, in many cases. And people can have these debates in the absence of anyone who's impacted by it and, and really lose the impact of some of these powers. So I think things like that, where we've really managed to pick up experiences which would other be, otherwise be hidden and really work to ensure that the voices of people are as part of the policy debate and not just that they're part of research but they're also actively involved in setting the policy and having conversations with policymakers around policing and what it what it means in their lives and I think one other thing that I would chart as a success not just for Stopwatch but all the partners and the people working in this field has been the change of narrative around stop and search so even though we've we're in this period of backlash where there is a real backlash against conversations about racial justice conversations about policing the kind of powers and how we protest in the last couple of years, we've had many discussions about stop and search and obviously quite frequently talked about on in the media or on social media. And what I think has changed is the tenor of the debate. I've seen people that you wouldn't expect to really come out and talk about the impact of stop and search. It's just an increasing awareness of, of what it means to be stopped and searched and the material and the social and the psychological impact it has on individuals and communities. And then also a much meaningful conversation about effectiveness and how we're using resources and whether it is a good use of police time. And I think that narrative's changed and I'm hearing much more balanced debates than I, we had for a long time. And I think that's been gradual work over a long time, but really speaks to some of the, the evidence work and the conversations that, that we've had over the years. Thank you very much, Rebecca, for that really fascinating overview of, of the journey of Stopwatch to date and some of its key milestones along the way. Uh, in part two of our discussion, we'll be talking a little bit more about Stopwatch from the charity side and hopefully giving a few top tips to charities who might be listening.